Billy Bang. On the Empire Podcast this week, we chat the hand of God, drugs, football, you know, all the major food groups with Diego Maradona director Asif Kapadia. You know, a kind of bad cop movie where they're looking for like some killer and then they go to the hotel room and they've got everything stuck up on the wall and there's arrows <laughs> joining and sellotape. That's my brain. All that and more on the movie podcast that has started training for a 10k run again and frankly, guys, is not enjoying it. Hey, here's an idea. Instead of running 10,000 metres one time, why not run one metre 10,000 times? So much easier. Take that on board. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by not one, not two, but three three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Well, actually, technically speaking, one isn't a colleague. One is my boss. Mm. Can your boss be your colleague? No. Terry White, what do you think about that? Absolutely not. I'm going to, but we've got, we, we, we've known each other a while now. We have. We've become, over the years, acquaintances. We, rocky <laughs> times, difficult beginnings, some may say. Yeah. Oh, but from, terrible from, endings. From that, <laughs> from that barren ground has come the shoots of, of, of you know, friendship. I think so. I think we went from mild dislike to... Oh, I hated you. I mean, <laughs> I, I it was full-blown. Full full but now look at this. But can, but can oh, what no. I'm saying to you is, can a boss and an underling mm. ever be colleagues? Because no. there's always that relationship. I know that you can fire me at any time. And, you know, I will probably ignore it and come in the next day anyway. Just like George and Seinfeld. <laughs> you <laughs> would so do that. <laughs> Eight years later, Chris yeah. still turns up to the Empire office. Empire hasn't even been publishing for the last four years. It's a barren wasteland. It's just an empty room it's with threats. a single desk and oh. water dripping down. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful times. But though. enough about Boris Johnson becoming <laughs> Tory leader. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. Anyway, no politics in this podcast. Hey, Helen O'Hara, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good, good. Uh, Helen, we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. Can colleagues be friends? Chris, over the many years I've I've known you, I've come to regard you as someone I met. (laughs) (laughs) So so that's great. Um, Yeah, and, you know, I was thinking about your 10,000 times running a metre. I think that's a really good idea, but maybe if you do those 10,000 metre runs, say, on the same day... I think it could you could be on something. I don't see how that would possibly work. Mm. What, like string the 10,000 yeah, one metre? Yeah, like just run one metre and then uh, immediately run do like 10, one more times. metre and then another metre also and then repeat. It's uh, difficult. It's difficult. I love how you say metre. Keep saying it. What metre? Metre. Metre. Hey, Helen everybody. looks very sexy today and Helen says metre in you say a very that? lovely way. Hashtag, yeah. hashtag metre. Mm. Uh, can, you, can you say that? Can you, can you, yeah, that's sexual harassment, isn't it? Helen looks beautiful today. And You're objectifying her. Yeah. Don't objectify yeah, Helen, you that's monster. Fine. Brains, beauty. She says metre. <laughs> yeah. Metre. What is up with that? I love it. Where are you from again? I don't know what's happened anyway, but uh, I think Terry and Helen are now an item, which is uh, which is lovely. That's nice. Uh, you know, it's been going that way, quite frankly, let's be honest. Uh, Jimbo, that means uh, that leaves me and you. Uh, James Dyer is also here in the podcast, which is nice, I guess. Jimbo, Hello. we might as well pair up. It's, you know, sure, why not? Uh, we've known each other a long time. Too long, some might say. Absolutely, all would say. Can colleagues ever become friends? No. Thanks, Jimbo. <laughs> you still up for that poker game? On yeah, sure. <laughs> all right, okay. All right, so it is time now for a question on the Emperor Podcast. Now we've all established our friendships, mm-hmm. and in Terry's case, maybe something a little bit more. I'm intrigued <laughs> by this. I mean, I want to see where this develops over the over the podcast. Let's have a let's have a question from a reader, shall we? Great. Or or a listener, even. 
because this is a podcast. Um, <laughs> at Clarky 85 Steve said, based on 25-year-old Justin Bieber challenging 56-year-old Tom Cruise this week to a fight. Did you see that? Basically, mm-hmm. he wants to fight Tom Cruise in an octagon. Why? Uh, because it's, it's very unclear. It's really hard to say, but uh, presumably he wants to be killed by Tom Cruise. Do you remember, I'm guessing. Do you remember when Uwe Boll started challenging his critics to boxing matches? Mm. Yes. Remember this? Yeah. Who and did he fight? I forget. He fought a critic, didn't he? I think he did find a critic, but yeah. I don't remember who it was. I don't either. I think he won because he's apparently quite good at boxing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Better at boxing, one might say, than making films, but sure. Potentially. Uh, very so. much so, indeed. Uh, so, anyway, Steve Clark's question is What movie star who is 31 years older than you would you challenge to a fight? Now, I thought this question was dangerous because it basically means we all have to reveal what year we were born. Yeah, no, I don't think but, so. Um, but I did look it up and I have to say, Tom Selleck, <laughs> you are going down, my friend. Oh, he would absolutely destroy you. Hang on. There's 31 years between you and Tom Selleck. Yeah, I know. I look older than he does. <laughs> What's going on there? Only one of us can grow a moustache as well. What's happened with that? I would have thought you were closer in age. How dare you? Would this fight take place around the dinner table in Blue Bloods? No, it would be in an octagon. But that's not as fun. Because in this case, I think he'd enlist the help of that irritating granddad guy. The granddad, the and, worst character yeah, in the history he'd, he'd of like, network television. Yeah, like yeah. he'd hit you around the head with something while you were, while you were he fighting. Would, no, the, the granddad would distract me he'd because I'd be, I'd be focused so much on kicking the shit out of the granddad yeah. that Selick would come in and mm. just like blindside me like the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park. I Clever go, girl. Clever Selick. And then suddenly he's pounced upon me on the kitchen table and then it goes in a weird direction from yeah. that point on. Wow. But, you know. It's all good. I'm okay. definitely not going to do the maths and work it work out who's 31 years older than me. But I will say the best and most definitive answer to this came from Brett Spiner, aka Data, who challenged Angela Lansbury <laughs> to a fight, only for Dick Van Dyke to step in and defend Angela Lansbury's honour by offering to fight on her behalf. At which point Brent Spiner backed down. At which point Dick Van Dyke called him. Brent spineless, more like. Yeah. Oh, my God. And Brent refused, rather politely, to make any jokes about Dick Van Dyke's name, which was probably wise. And they ended up making up. And it was beautiful. But it is genuinely the best thing that's happened on Twitter in about five years. So hang on, let me get this straight. Let me, let me just crunch the sure. data on this. Uh, so Brent Spiner yep. was happy to fight an 80-something-year-old woman. I think she's actually 90. But 90-something-year-old yes. mm-hmm. woman. But when Dick Van Dyke steps in... He turns tail and runs. That is correct. <laughs> Cowardice. I have. Looked, Terry, you've been looking at that. I up. have looked this okay. up. Okay, Samuel L. Jackson. You are Whoa. not challenging Sam Jackson to who, a fight. I mean, seriously, who would you have your money on? I think it's a really difficult oh, thing. I mean, you're versus... you're feral. <laughs> you, you are wearing a beret very well right now. Like, so I mean, you what are, is going on with no, you two in this saying, podcast? Get a room. She's, she's a better match for him than people might expect. Do you know what I mean? Because he also wears a beret well. This is a very sexual podcast. I don't I know what's I think we're happened. both profane. We are both, you know. Oh, you swear at him, yeah. 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 Swear off. Okay, I challenge Samuel L. Jackson to a beret wearing <laughs> swear off. Oh, my God. But once you get the bloodlust, once I mean, you get that sort of, you I've know. I've got it. Yeah. James, I think there's a lot of compliments flowing around here today. So uh, you are looking very old. I mean, you're looking at me. <laughs> so well done there. Thanks, well done on that. Chris. Who would you fight? Someone 31 years older than me. I'd have to say Bradley Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> what? Why are you laughing? I yeah. don't understand. 
James was a child hire at Empire. <laughs> what year were you born? It's like a long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> which makes us all quite complicated. Mm-hmm. I'm going to find you someone. You're going to find me a person to fight. I'm going to find you a, an actor to fight. All right, here we go. Here we go. You should fight... <laughs> Danny DeFito. <laughs> Can you defeat DeFito? Can I defeat DeVito? Possibly not. Trollfoot. I think he'd have me. You he'd think? Sm- he'd bite my ankles. He'd bite your ankles. He'd, mm. you know, quick headbutt to the balls. And yeah, you'd, I've you'd seen be down. twins. He's quite scrappy. Absolutely. Mm. Oh, what a sight to be. I'm sorry, I'm just like running it in my what, head. Me it's versus like, Danny DeVito. Yeah. yeah. It's really working there's, there's for your, me. There's your slash fiction sorted for the next <laughs> week or so, isn't it? Wow. He'd run between your legs and you know bite the nads. He'd be all he'd be all up in your grill. He'd go full penguin. He'd topple you like Gulliver. Mm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> then he'd climb all over. Yeah, okay. he'd romance your stone. Weird. He'd kick you in the jewel of the Nile. That's for sure. So there you go, Danny DeVito fighting James Dyer in the car park of Morrison's next week. Any your tickets? <laughs> Anytime. I'm going to head over there now. Anytime. I'll cut you, Danny. I'll cut you. You're going <laughs> to kick him over window. And there we go. What's the word for that? Remember, we learned at the live podcast? Defenestrate. Oh, yes. Mm. Wait, I was letting Terry. It was, Sorry, Terry. It stole her moments. Defenestrate. <laughs> That's how you say it, right? <laughs> well, well, got, well done, Terry. Well done. You should have heard the Positive shit I reinforcement. got on the pilot TV podcast last week for using the term iambic pentameter, which I then had to explain. No, I'm sorry. It wasn't the fucking words iambic pentameter. It was you being a bellend and talking about iambic pentameter <laughs> on the TV podcast. That was the problem. I mean, that's, I, yeah, that's I can fair. see that's this a, is a, yeah. a recurring theme here. Yeah. By the way, if you're a screenwriter and you're listening, the character name Bic Pentameter is a great one because you can have a character come in and go, I am oh. Bic Pentameter. See? So there amazing. you go. So if you're writing a Shakespeare related comedy, mm. have one of your characters be called Bic Pentameter. A guy comes in and goes, I am Bic Pentameter. Let's have a party. Because that's what he says as his catchphrase. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. Hey, Bic Pentameter. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire podcast, as Steve Clark found to his cost, you can get in touch via a number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. <laughs> Don't look at me. Or you can Facebook us as well, where we're Empire Magazine. Or you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. Use the subject heading Big Pentameter, or chances are we won't see it. Anyway, <laughs> should we move on to this week's movie news? Please. Oh, let's. let's. Can we talk about that TV news as well? I mean, well, if, if we see, must, uh, although I, mean, I believe there is some sort of podcast that is already existing that will take care I've, of that I've for heard us. that. Tell me about it, Chris. What was it called? The um, Basic Bingers. It was, really, it was really good, guys. You should check it out. No, uh, it's the pilot TV podcast, James. And my understanding is that it's available every week and it features you, Terry White, my boss slash colleague slash friend, Boyd Hilton, one of my favourite journalists named after a hotel chain. Right. Well, it sounds very good. It sounds essential, even. Yeah, along with Steve Travelodge. <sighs> and, of course, Brian Premier Inn. Omni. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all good. So that's available every uh, Monday. Um, I'll give you some fucking news. So there's Ooh, a woo-hoo! Dune TV series. Right. Denis Villeneuve, the legend that he is, has uh, has announced that he's going to be involved in a spin-off TV series about the Bene Gesserit sisterhood. Oh, mm-hmm. God. Oh, yes. 
This is in, potentially very cool. Yeah, it is cool. It is cool. Yeah, I, I'm a, I'm allow James to decool it now yeah. by yeah. Yeah. Dune-splaining. No, no, let, tell, Helen, you Dune-splain. I think everyone's okay. heard me do it enough. So this is the sisterhood of, you know, think nuns, but kind of Machiavellian and a lot more like James Bond. And a little right? into eugenics. Yeah, very into eugenics, but on a particular scale. So they are working towards creating a particular future and making sure particular people are born at particular times and they use every tool at their disposal, including their own reproductive organs, to make sure that that happens. Mm -hmm. Except, of course, when they choose not to and everything goes a bit squishy with the god emperor of June and everything else. Indeed. But yeah, so they're literally manipulating the fate of the universe mm-hmm. um, by having behind sex the with scenes. People. Sometimes by having sex with people, sometimes by killing people, sometimes by all sorts of different means. Fear the gom jabbar, Helen. I you do. have just described the Conservative Party. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they're very competent, the Bene Gesserit, and they know what's happening and they plan so really oh, not... Oh, no, you have not described the Conservative yeah. Party. So okay. it's, it's very, very different. Sorry, no politics. Indeed. My only concern about this is this is an, an entirely female sisterhood and there are no women currently announced in the production team, which is a little bit concerning. You know, you've got Villeneuve in, in charge and he's great, but at the same time, like, a little bit more female input might it's be It's called June thing. the Sisterhood and yet the Sisterhood is not involved. Exactly. Yes. That's my thing. So um, my understanding is... That Rebecca Ferguson's Lady Jessica That's right. mm-hmm. is one of the Bene Gesserit. Indeed. Yes, indeed. So do but we she's, think... she's the one who kind of screws things up mm. by no. having a son when she's told to have a daughter. Paul mm. Atreides. Mm-hmm. Yes, Played that's right. by Timothy Chalamet. A.K.A. Muadib. I'm on board with this. Now, do we think that Rebecca Ferguson is going to turn up in this television program as well? I wouldn't given expect her... Given that she's a bona fide her, movie star. I wouldn't expect her to play a major role. But we know the Mother Superior casting, right, from the film, which was... It's Charlotte Rampling. Charlotte Rampling. So I m- imagine Charlotte Rampling would play more of a role. But it could well be that it's a particular offshoot of sisters on a particular mission that we see. So that might not be the case. Who knows? Or dares to dream. Indeed. Dune, the sisterhood of the travelling pants, will be well, coming to a streaming <laughs> service soon. But this is cool, right? I mean, let's actually drill into this a little bit deeper because... This is what they wanted to do with the Dark Tower mm. initially before they <laughs> what, fucked that up completely. Mm. Uh, where they had initially announced when Ron Howard was going to be the director as it was going to be three movies with two TV shows to bridge those movies and that Javier Bardem would actually be in those TV shows as mm. well as Roland Deschain before he moved on and Ron Howard moved on and it all went terribly, terribly wrong. And it's also Netflix this week have announced that they have a showrunner on their grand plans for the Narnia series as well, the Chronicles of Narnia series. And it is the co-writer of Coco, Matthew Aldrich. And he's going to come on and oversee the whole thing. And that's going to be TV shows, films, leading into each other, a whole interconnecting narrative. Do you think this is the future in a weird way? And also the fact that Villeneuve is directing this is interesting to me. He's not just doing the film or films Mm. and then just passing it off to some June dude to uh, do the A junior dooner. A junior dooner. So he's he's doing it himself, and I think that's well, uh, for an interesting episode, for the first episode. Yeah. But he's also and then he'll be locking down the visual mm. template for for what follows. Well, yeah, I mean, and obviously Marvel are doing it with their Disney Plus shows yep. as well, which are yep. much more, I think, closely tied to the universe than what we've seen from them before. So yeah, it does seem like it's um, 
uh, braving it on, a, a way to get your cinema audience to watch your TV shows and vice versa, I think, is a big part of it as well. And also to use the characters that you have that aren't quite cinematic enough maybe for the big, big, big screen. But I think that's what they've got to work out right because I think I see the benefit for streaming and for TV. Mm. You've got somebody like Villeneuve who as you say, can set the whole template and can make sure that the quality when it moves over to there is as high as cinema. Because as we know from some of the Marvel shows, what they lacked was the same quality as the cinematic Mm. universe. I suppose for me, it's really working out what still belongs on a cinema screen and what belongs on a TV screen. Because while people are, and you know, we talk about this a lot on Empire and Pilot, while people are moving between those things far easier, people are consuming them with much more parity they are still different experiences and there are still mm. things that are far more suited to paying your 15 quid and going to seeing them big in scale and scope and, and in an epic way on a cinema screen and then something slightly different on TV. So I think you still need some kind of differentiation between yeah. the two so that people understand why they're watching it, where they're watching it as well. Yeah, I agree with that. But yeah. this, this sounds potentially intriguing. I would just, you know... Given that it is an order entirely of women, I would like to see some more women in there. Oh, you'll get God your done. No, now ridiculous. you do sound like the Conservative Party. No, 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 you don't. You <laughs> no, really don't sound really like the Conservative don't, Party. Really don't. Um, yeah, very, very excited about that. And uh, there was also some video game adaptation news this week, or over mm-hmm. the course of the last week as well. The Division, Tom Clancy's The Division, which James can probably bore us to tears about, is, I could, but I won't. is going to become a movie on Netflix with Jake Gyllenhaal and Jessica Chastain mm-hmm. attached, and David Leach going to be directing it as well. And Netflix have snapped it up, uh, which kind of surprised me that no major studio would go near that property with that caliber of talent attached. That's exciting. What, is that exciting, Jimbo? I mean, if it involves them running around areas, killing brainless AI soldiers and a never-ending grind for better loot, then yes, I'm sure. You're not a, a fan of the game. I love no, the, game. I, the game bored me rigid. I haven't played uh, The Division 2 because The Division 1 made me lose the will to live. But um, it's it's a particular genre of game, so it's it, which requires great investments of time for, in many ways, little or no reward. So I, 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 I'm not a fan. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate here. My, my theory for a long time has been that you can make a great movie based on a video game if you don't make a video game first. If, and if you pay no attention to any <laughs> video game in particular. Like Crank is a great video game movie. It's just not based on a video game. So maybe if they just ignore the video game, apart from maybe the title then it could work. It's just a name recognition thing, isn't it? Because there's no real need to base it on the division because it's a slightly sort of miscellaneous future, post-apocalyptic yeah. kind of landscape. You don't need to base it on anything. That's what I'm saying. So do that. Do that, indeed. And also the Uncharted movie is creeping ever closer and has now got a date. Uh, and that date is December 18th, 2020. And this one's going to star Tom Holland, the noted historian, oh, I love him. who is going to step up the plate and play young... Wait, is it definitely that Tom Holland? Hang on, let me just take a quick look here. No, sorry, got oh, it wrong. Yeah. Tom Holland, the director of Child's Play and Fright Night, is oh. going to step up the plate and play a young Nathan Drake, which is a bit of... That's a stretch. Uh, are you no. sure that's... Uh... No. Is it the other one? It's the other one. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's the, the footballer. No, the guy who fixed James' roof. no. Tom Holland, the guy who plays Spider-Man, oh, is yeah. going to be young Nathan Drake in the Uncharted movie, which is out December 18th, 2020, directed by Dan Trachtenberg, director of 10 Cloverfield Lane. Now, you won't be surprised to know, I haven't played this game, but my understanding, Jimbo, is that Nathan Drake is a really grizzled Indiana Jones type in his 
40s or so. So this is clearly going to be a prequel. I don't want to see little Tom Holland playing young Nathan Drake. I want to see Nathan Fillion playing older Nathan Drake for that is what was ordained and that is what we deserve. Here's the thing. Nathan Fillion is cliched, boring casting for that role. He's excellent casting. Only because people have been telling you who's the right casting for 20 years. Kyle motherfucking Chandler. Oh, he's handsome. Only because he looks a little bit like him. No, but also he's, he's got it going on. He's he, got he's got the manliness. I can't he's got he the has stubble. He does, you yeah. know, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. But he's not really <laughs> Nathan Drake for me. He's not quite as roguish. Yeah, he can be roguish though. Can I thought he was pretty good in Godzilla, the King of the Monsters. He wasn't roguish there. He wasn't he was roguish, just, but no, he was pissed he off. Good. He was solid, absolutely solid. Did, hey, did he someone, play Mothra? Someone told us this week that uh, the uh, house he is in at the beginning of Godzilla, the King of the Monsters, is also Tony Stark's house in. Avengers Endgame. Mm. And Helen, you found this out, didn't you? That yeah, you can rent it on Airbnb. Can you really? $800 oh a night. I think we should all go. How much holiday. was it before it was in Avengers Probably Endgame? Probably like $100 a night. <laughs> $800 a night. Oh. I'm thinking live show. I'm thinking us four, producer Jane, select audience, like real select, crowdfunded. You have to pay for our flights and accommodation as well, guys. And obviously, the, you know, the stuff. But if we can raise... Just do the numbers here, crunch, crunch, crunch. Half a million dollars between now and the end of July. I think we can make this a reality. And then we can bang on about Avengers Endgame some more because we haven't done that enough. We haven't really discussed that. We should talk about the portals. We should talk about the portals, uh, portals, 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 portals. But yeah, Kyle Chandler, he's he's right there, guys. Nathan Drake. Kyle Chandler's one of those guys who should be a much bigger star than he is. Agreed. And here's my thing. A few weeks ago, people were sn- were poo pooing me whenever I was raising the idea of Nick Holt playing Superman. Now it's all people can talk about. Mm. I walk into the, the building, I can hear people going, "Nick Holt, he'd be a great Superman." And I think the <laughs> really? same thing is going to happen <laughs> with Kyle Chandler as Nathan Drake. Terry's on board. I Look. agree. The same thing will absolutely happen as what happened when you suggested Nick Holt for Superman. <laughs> nothing. Yes. Tony's <laughs> absolutely nothing. All right. Any other news, Terry? Do you have yes, any news? I do. I want to talk about Mindy Kaling. Yes. And Ms. James looks really excited already. So Mindy Kaling, she's obviously in promotion for Late Night and was talking specifically about Ms. Marvel and the Kamala Khan incarnation. So there's obviously been four in the comic book series, two of which were Carol Danvers, two of which were Kamala. And Ms. Marvel, I know, has been in kind of production at Marvel on and off for maybe the best part of a decade. So when we did the Captain Marvel story earlier this year, they talked about how there had been various Ms. Marvels in development. This is obviously a very specific one, the first Muslim hero. And Kayling basically said, she rang Marvel and said, I really, really would like to do it and I will be involved in whatever way it takes to make this happen. And said that essentially they sounded very receptive. Mm. What that means in terms of actually getting it into development, I do not know. I Um, call them up all the time and they just... I mean, never answer. Or, in fairness, I, I, I got Kevin. the impression they came to her and Kevin. then she made the offer of doing anything basically to make this happen. But maybe I'm maybe I'm misreading that. One of us is maybe yeah. me. But no, it's it's film. The comics are so popular. These these sell way more than your Doctor Strangers and your Guardians of the Galaxy. And she's just a phenomenal character. She's really good. She's as bouncy and and young and excited as Spider Man. But mm-hmm. she has a whole other raft of issues and questions in her life. Different, very very different powers. Um, she's had some really cool, funny storylines. She hung out with a teenage Loki. It's a long story for a while, which is really <laughs> funny. But like, she's got a different 
set of problems and a different set of challenges. And I think she'd be great. And I know that, you know, Mindy Culling was speculating about the Disney Plus service and the streaming yeah, service. Yeah, could be a place for it. I want her on the big screen. Yeah. I genuinely don't want them to be scared of this because she, the comics are so good and so big that I think they have a real opportunity here to put her on the big screen in the same way that they made Doctor Strange into a thing, in the same way that they made Guardians of the Galaxy into a thing, Ms. Marvel should be a big screen thing. And I really want to see that. It could be a really important part of the next phase. And there's mm. no re- I don't see any natural reason it would go on Disney+. Plus. I mean, unless they really wanted a piece of hero content to give it some kind of big marketing at the get-go. Mm. But I think it's absolutely like all a cinematic Disney, property. Yeah, yeah, all the Disney Plus stuff. And Kevin Feige this week revealed the first kind of behind-the-scenes or first piece of concept mm. art, piece of concept art from, uh, from the Loki show, which had a marquee for Jaws in the background. So it does mm. look like Loki's mm. going to be bumbling his way through human history as indeed has been said before mm. um, so that's going to be interesting but all that stuff's been kind of spinning off from the, the bigger franchises and that's just yeah. one that I'm missing I don't think I am but it's like Loki WandaVision Falcon and Winter Soldier Scarlet Witch mm. uh, we've already mentioned that one and Hawkeye's going to get its own mm. show as well so I'm not sure they're going to well, maybe they will debut some new characters on the on the Disney Plus service but Kamala Khan is a great way to go she's a very good playable character on Marvel Puzzle Quest oh, God. three stars <laughs> oh. Very good. She can attack the other team all at once. And when she does so, your team gets an uh, energy boost as well. So that's a good character. Please. A little tip there. Please play Marvel Puzzle warning. Quest. Do not play Marvel Puzzle Quest. Mm-hmm. Chris is mm-hmm. addicted to mm-hmm. it and it's mm-hmm. deeply mm-hmm. upsetting. I am looking to join a new alliance. Oh By the way, I left my alliance that, this week. Is that like so a guild in World of Warcraft? Anyone wants to You're help me join so their alliance sad. on Marvel Puzzle Quest and hit me up. My username on the game is Pod Empire. That is... My username it's not that, is it? It's, it is really. It's Pod oh Empire. So check me out. Is that like um, Dungeons and Dragons? No, it's, it's like Candy Crush with Marvel characters. Yeah, we, I, it, James just described the best thing ever, right? <laughs> the only way this game could possibly get any better is if Jurgen Klopp ended up somehow as a playable character or non-playable <laughs> wow. in this game. I'd be very, very happy. Hey, do you know that Black Adam has got a director? That's exciting, Ooh, isn't who's it? Who's that? Well, Helen, I will tell you, thank you for asking. Uh, it is Chame Collet Sarah, who, of oh. course, is the director of, uh, well, he's working with Dwayne Johnson on Jungle Cruise. And Black Adam, in case you don't know what that is, this is possibly the longest in development movie mm. in the DCEU. It's been a development long before, I think, any of the movies that they've made in the last few years. And this is, uh, Black Adam is the arch nemesis, a mirror image of Shazam. Mm-hmm but he can't actually Google any song to find out what he's listening to. I think that's one of the power he's lacking. And this was mooted long before the Shazam movie was in development. I think they were kind of seeing how that one went. But now it looks like they are going to hit with Black Adam because John May Call It Sarah, who has directed Dwayne Johnson on Jungle Cruise, which is out next year, is looking like he's going to direct this movie as well. Director also of four movies with Liam Neeson. Can Mm. you name them? Uh, The Flight... Plan? <laughs> no, okay. not flight plan. In flight, there was a red eye. I don't there know. There was a stop. Okay. Non stop. Non stop. Okay. Number one. Okay. <laughs> they're all about transport. What's the one no, on they're the not train? all about transport. Was, the, was that the commuter? What's, what's the one on the, the train? The commuter. What's yeah. the one where he played the commuter? What's that one? The commuter? Okay, that's two. Okay. Uh, any of the Takens? No. No. One is from a few years ago. It's the one where, where Big Liam kind of loses his mind a little bit. He, he has amnesia. Oh, Ooh, with, the, with, un- unknown. with Diane un- Kruger in it. Correct, yes. Okay. Unknown, which has had an amazing scene where Big Liam and Aidan Quinn... You can't do this No one's looking out to see what the last one is. I'm not going to give it away. And then the last one came out a few years ago. Yes, I found it. Big Liam and uh, my good friend Joel Kinnaman. They're, uh, they're running all night. 
Ronald Knight. Ronald Knight. That's the one. That's the one. So there we go. So Jamie Colasera, a decent pair of fans. Director, of course, also of Goal 2, Living the Dream. Oh. Yeah. So yeah, but good. <laughs> like, fine. I mean, The Rock has been attached to this forever. So yeah. let's just do it and get move on with our lives. You know? Yes, absolutely. It might be great. It might In The be Rock, great. I believe. A couple of quick things before we move on. Sure. The Spice Girls are back. Are they? They're playing Wembley Stadium tonight. Wow. It's such a shame. At time I'm of recording. going to be somewhere else. Uh, they're back. They're touring. There's only four of them touring, but uh, they're back in a new animated movie that Paramount Animation is going to make. And all five are going to be involved. Mm. So posh, baby, That's scary, exciting. spicy, dozy, deaky, bicky, micken, titch, <laughs> bim. Good. Spice Girls. It's funny because that was the working title of the Dune spinoff series. Hey! God, but it is you. interesting that Victoria the posh is involved because she right? refused to pretty much do anything. So who is not involved? Is it the ginger one? No, no, she, no, no pay attention. She literally yeah. just explained. So she won't do I wasn't the, listening. Apparently the tour is the saddest thing on earth because it's, <laughs> it's the remaining four of them half-heartedly singing along to their uh, to their songs. Posh slash the Victoria <laughs> would, did not want to be involved in any new Spice Girls activity because she is a multimillionaire and mm. has her own fashion line and is a very serious fashion person. And perhaps is perhaps not the best singer. So perhaps I mean, it's not if suited. that's going to be the rule, then <laughs> Sorry, hang on a second here. Mel C is a oh, belting singer. Fair play. All right, she could, she's got a range of at least an octave. Sporty, sporty can uh, sporty hold can, a tune. Yeah, sporty yeah. can sing. Sporty can hold a tune. So actually, yeah. Victoria being involved somehow has become a weird kind of uh, indicator of quality. I yeah. think potentially gives yeah. her that extra quarter inch to quote her book. <laughs> so great. I, I'm sorry, what? No, it's, no, it's the name of her book. She's written a book. She's never read a book, but she has written a book. <laughs> she <laughs> said that. She says that. I'm okay oh to my. say that. Oh, I thought she's, she's gone full Garth Marenghi. No, I'm one of the few it. people you will meet who has <laughs> written, written more books, books than he's read. <laughs> but yeah, she, so she, um, she called her book something like That Extra Quarter Inch, which is about just the, the perfection in fashion and just going for that little extra thing. That's weirdly what my autobiography is called say, as well. Okay. All right, Hedwig. Um, yeah. The Doctor Sleep trailer dropped. Ooh, this is exciting. I haven't. I've yet to see it. In fact, because it has dropped while we've been in here recording oh. this podcast. But apparently, it is in many ways the success of the Stanley Kubrick movie, which I had not seen coming. I mean, I perhaps should have done. Shining sequel in no, 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 sequel no, no, no. to Shining no, Shocker. No, no, but sequel to Kubrickian Shining, which obviously distinguishes itself heavily from Kingian Shining. And yes. King is involved in this film, and King famously hates the Kubrick film. So it's interesting that they are straddling yes. these two worlds like a great big actual colossus. It does seem to be as much a sequel to the Kubrick film as the King book. You're you're absolutely right. Whereas we were really which is expecting not what the book is necessary. A sequel to Ready Player One, and that would have been yes. <laughs> more in keeping. Oh, Boy. I'm really excited about this. I haven't seen the trailer yet, but uh, in Mike Flanagan, I trust. And mm. I think this could be absolutely blinding. So, uh, yeah, there we go. And then just two really, really quick bits. Kevin Hart is in the market to remake Scrooged. Mm. Well, look, I mean, you know, every generation gets their Christmas Carol. Unfortunately, the last one got the Robert Zemeckis animated film, which wasn't great. But um, even though my inclination is, no, don't touch Scrooged. It's perfect. Is it though? I mean, it's pretty close. Yeah, it's pretty great. But I just feel like maybe I should be generous and allow someone else to consider the possibility of maybe remaking it, even though it's perfect. I think this would be a good role for Kevin Hart. I think he could do great things with it, actually. Yeah, but but also, like, yeah, there's just so true. many good bits in that that are just pure Bill Murray. And, you know, it I, is. I it those. is the most Murray of it's Murray. Murray. It's very Murray. Uh, I, yes, I love Scrooge. It's, it's mm. a glorious film. 
and then very, very quickly, finally, before we talk about the, the most important movie news of the week, obviously, Steven Spielberg is going to write something for Jeffrey Katzenberg is launching this new, I can't get my head around what it is or words available, but it's called, or even how you pronounce it, but it's called Quibi or Quibi. See, that's the thing. Like, pick a word that people know how to pronounce, Jeffrey. <laughs> you think you would know that. Hmm. It's a abbreviation of Quick Bites. So it's now Quibi, Q-U-I-B-I. So Quibi, 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 anyway, whatever it is. Quibi for the strike? I don't know. Uh, lots of famous people are going to be writing stuff and directing stuff and producing stuff for this platform. So Paul Fig is attached to develop shows for this platform. I assume people will be able to watch on their phone. Don Cheadle is attached to a show as well. The news has emerged this week. But Steven Spielberg is going to write a series of horror shorts for this. Cool. Which is very, very cool because he hasn't written anything since 2001 with AI artificial intelligence, but before that was really close encounters and, and mm-hmm. poltergeist as well. So exciting <coughs> stuff. And apparently these are going to be short chapters, 10 to 12 short chapters, 7 to 10 minutes each. Spielberg's written six thus far. Bit busy at the moment on West Side Story, and then he's got Indy 5 to do as well. But uh, you can only watch them after dark, apparently. Yeah, so I don't get this right, because it says your phone registers that the sun has set and that's when you are able to unlock the content and watch it. Yeah. But you must be able to circumvent that, right? Can't yeah, you I can. just put my head under the my quilt? Well no, cover? it won't be it won't be light sensitive. Mm. It'll basically work on it'll know when dusk is in the time zone that you're in. Yeah. You must be able to of course like, you can. Yeah you just presumably yeah. you can change the clock on your phone. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I used to play uh one of the Star Wars games on my phone and your lives replenished over time, you would just go in, just change your phone. Or was it Candy Crush? It was Candy Crush. Oh my god. And you would just change the clock on your phone and then it would think it was like eight hours later and so all your lives had replenished and I should try this for Marvel Puzzle You have too much free time. Oh my God, why? How do you switch off on weekends, Terry? What do you do? What do you do, Terry? Uh, Watch insanely grim and violent television shows or films. Brilliant. Super good. It's a right laugh around mine if anyone wants to come. (laughs) Hey, speaking of insanely violent, can we talk about Quentin Tarantino? We can. Because he talked this week uh, to us, in fact, Mm -hmm. about his plans for Star Trek and an R-rated, sweary Star Trek, and I have to say, I'm I'm trying to digest this, and I'm having I'm having a little bit of trouble. So obviously, we've had swearing in Star Trek, yeah. um, uh-huh. uh, n- most notably recently in Discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, they've even dialed it back there because they kind of did it, and it was a bit like this feels weird. Yeah, and I feel yeah. like they've kind of so phase is the motherfucking stunt. All right, steady, yeah. steady. It's a bit to boldly like, go oh, where no motherfucker has gone before. And I just, I just don't know if we need it. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be open-minded to the possibility of a very different kind of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And then I don't want you mean a, a, a good one that's like entertaining. No, I'm kidding. I'm as I love the story. I was just being I watched controversial. DS Nine this week, and it's still so freaking good. Um, but I just I, I'm trying to be open to this possibility of an R-rated sweary Star Trek, and, and I don't yeah. want it. And I'm trying to want it, and I, I don't want it. But he's Quentin Tarantino, and I'm assuming it'll be good. And I'm wrong, and everything else. So I just wish he'd stop and not do that. <laughs> James, I'm curious as to how you feel. Oh, about I'm, this I'm, being I'm a massive. Geek. I, you cannot have too much Star Trek. I'm, everyone should be making Star Trek. I want a channel that's just fucking Star Trek. And you're fine with. You've just proven my point. Yeah. By well, but the thing is, you want fucking Terry, Star Trek. I love swearing. I love Star Trek. What's not to love about putting these two great things together in one glorious concoction? 
Because it's not very Star Trek. Like, of course it is. Kirk swore fucking like... Fucking no, no, I mean, Grey. Look, I know, I know Motherfucking hot. I mean, in Picard en- In Encounter at Farpoint, like, Picard drops a merd right there in he the first does. episode. He like merds. I know this. And, and I just... But I feel like it shouldn't be your intention. It shouldn't be like... It feels more like Quentin Tarantino imposing himself on Star Trek. And maybe that's completely unfair and wrong. And I hope to be proven unfair and wrong in this. But it, it feels weird to me and I don't feel like we need that in Star Trek. Well I think Trek. what what Discovery has shown us recently is there's more flex in Star Trek I think than maybe mm. than maybe we thought because like traditional Star Trek had a very distinct warm and fuzziness to it and I think mm. and there's something comforting about that and I've always but the, worried the, about moving away from that. The thing is like but... as Discovery went on I think it brought more and more of that back and I think more and more of that worked. I felt like it moved away from the swearing actually and it moved towards relationships I'm fascinated by this because, you know, we, we, Tarantino has said repeatedly that he's going to make 10 films as a director. I mean, technically, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is his 10th film because mm-hmm. if you split Kill Bill into two films. Anyway, it's a whole can of worms. But the next film after this will be his 10th and final film if he sticks to his word. And frankly, I don't think he will. But you never know. Because mm. why box yourself will. in? He will. He's Why Tarantino. box yourself in like that? What if he well, makes his 10th like, film? No, he's going to... Classic Tarantino. He's going to Soderbergh all over the place. Yeah. Like, unretired. Uh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. God, what a brilliant use of Soderbergh absolutely. all over the place. You know what he's like, though. He... I What's think he like? It's classic Tarantino to go, I'm only going to make 10 films and then be bloody-minded and make But why do that films? to yourself? Like, what if he makes his 10th film and then one day he's walking along and he gets an amazing idea for his 11th film and it's burning him up inside and he can't do it because he said what he said. Just go and make it, Quentin. No one's counting except you. What he could do and is you. make a single film, arguably, and break it into, or make eight films and put it all together in one film. A la, you know, Death Proof, Kill Bill, you mm. make multi parts. Don't run a 10K once, exactly. run a meter 10,000 times. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So yeah. Tarantino makes I... one film, that's like 10 films. Well, I'm on board with this. I think it's good. And I want to know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese on Seti Alpha 5. So, mm. you know, roll it on. Well, it depends if you've got your universal translator switched well, it, on. It switches you from Imperial to Metric. Of course. Roll it on. Hey, so roll he, it on, Terry. Roll it on. Engage. Make it so. <laughs> So if I'm correct, this Tarantino news came out of an esteemed publication that was published this week, right? Total film. Yeah, I believe it was. I was just going to make that joke. (laughs) 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 Yes, Helen, thank you. Um, The new issue of Empire came out today. We are recording this on Thursday. And Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the cover. Our beautiful, lovely, smart... Excellent, funny Nick DeSemlian went in the edit with Tarantino, um, also spoke to Brad Pitt, spoke to Margot Robbie, spoke to Leonardo DiCaprio. We have the full incredible story of the making of this film. Also, Tarantino is our Empire 30 director this issue, so we put your reader questions to him and he tackled them gamely. And also we have Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith giving us their tribute to the filmmaker. It is, I have to say... A fucking amazing issue. We've got Ari Aster in there. For uh, Midsummer, right? For Midsummer, yep. We went to New York and hung out with him. We've got Jim Jamoosh for The oh, Dead Don't Die. Love it. I think it's pretty much the only interview he did at Cannes uh, with our Alex Godfrey. We have Agnes Varda. Obviously, her final film is due out just a few months after she died. And we tracked down lots of her closest collaborators to talk about her spirit and her verve and her filmmaking brilliance. And this issue comes with Pilot. Yes, enough about the magazine that comes free with Pilot TV magazine. Let's talk about the main event. (laughs) 
And we went on set of Stranger Things for the third series. Strangest Things. Strangest Things. And we have James Dyer's epic. Yes. Biblical. Yes. Battlestar Galactica. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. It's the best thing in the issue. (laughs) It's so good. Um, And we have the best of summer shows. So it is, I have to say, I know, like, I get paid to say this, but also it genuinely is the best, most compelling, exciting, exclusive packed package of Empire and Pilot. And it is now on newsstands pretty much everywhere. Hooray! All good and evil news agents and digitally as well. It is an absolute belter. What was your favourite bit, Chris? I interviewed Jim Mangold. That was nice. And obviously my section, the (laughs) award-winning, mainly awards I bestowed bestowed upon it myself, Uh, the award-winning review is, oh, Terry, it's a belter, isn't it? it? You did speak to Guillermo as well. I did speak to Guillermo del Toro and all sorts of stuff. There's great things in there. Ron Perlman is in there. Sam Elliott, Helen, you spoke to him. Yeah, I did. Fantastic. Uh, Or you heard heard his voice rumble out of the speaker. It was kind of just like, there was just just, just this almost indistinguishable sexy rumble just coming through the phone. And then, and then occasionally, like a, a phrase would sort of float yeah. to the surface. Mm-hmm. Anyway, point is, it's a great magazine, and you should pick them up great. immediately yeah. at a newsagent. Empire and Pilot. Hurrah. What, a, what a team. And speaking of great magazines, it is time to have a word from this week's sponsor. Because we're always delighted to have The Economist sponsor the podcast, and this week is no exception. And if you don't already subscribe to The Economist, well, friends, I'm here to tell you that you are missing out big time. The Economist is your one-stop shop, your indispensable guide to economics, politics, entertainment, and the world around us. And it has been so for over 170 years. Yes, I looked it up today. I googled this. The very first issue of The Economist went on sale in September 1843. Wait a minute, that's quarter to seven. Oh, no, the year 1843. But it remains as vital and essential as it ever was. And you know, I like to flick through the current edition, in this case dated uh, June 8th, 2019, looking for stories that have a filmic bent, and few are more filmic or relevant than the story of Tony Medina, a prisoner on death row in Texas who has spent the last two decades in solitary confinement and whose plight is profiled in an excellent article. And it's relevant because it's heavily reminiscent, we didn't talk about this in the news section actually, of the tale of Albert Woodfox, who's a a man who was kept in solitary confinement in a Louisiana prison, I'm not kidding, for 40 years before he was released in 2016 and Solitary is the name of the book he subsequently wrote about his struggle to survive on the inside and the outside because psychologists say that it can bring with it extreme emotional and psychological trauma once you get mm-hmm. released. Uh, this week it was announced as a major movie to be produced by and star Mahershala Ali. So it's relevant in that way and the story of Medina is an increasingly timely one as the demands on the prison system in the United States and concerns about the number of prisoners in solitary confinement grow and whatever your position on the penal system, it's an eye-opening read. And it's just one of the many brilliant articles in this week's Economist. Articles that will expand your mind to give you brand new insight into the way the world works. And we're once again offering all UK-based Empire Podcast listeners an incredible free offer, a free print copy of The Economist to share amongst yourselves. Oh, no, wait, no, sorry. I read that wrong. There's one each. You get one each, one free print copy each to get the ball rolling. How much will it cost? I don't think you guys were listening. It's Free. <gasps> Gratis. No money will change hands. All you have to do is text the word MOVIES, MOVIES, to 78070. And before you know it, you'll be up to your eyeballs in great articles. That word again, MOVIES, 
The number again, 78070. And thanks once again to The Economist for sponsoring the show. All right, so now it is time for this week's guest. Asif Kapadia is one of our finest directors and he's able to flit nicely between feature-length narrative movies like The Warrior, his first movie, and Alienina, which came out recently. But also he has carved out this new career for himself almost as a documentarian, almost by accident. He made Senna a few years ago, obviously the story of Erdan Senna. Then he followed it up uh, more recently with, with Amy. Amazing. The story of the, the late, great, tragic Amy Winehouse. And now this week, he completes a trilogy of sorts with Diego Maradona, which focuses on a very specific time in the tumultuous life of, well, Diego Maradona, one of the greatest footballers of all time. Uh, Asa Kapadia popped into this very, very booth last week and had a good old natter with him about, well, lots of stuff. Football, yes, obviously. Films, yes. Liverpool Football Club, yes, we're both supporters. Did we start there? Yes. Was he in Madrid at the Champions League final? Also, yes. But once you get past that stuff, this is a really fascinating interview, so do please enjoy. Up the Reds. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the director of Diego Maradona, Asif Kapadia. How are you, sir? I'm good, man. Good. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for, for, for being here, especially since you had a fairly lengthy journey. You were in Madrid on Saturday night, so what's oh, your, what's your experience been like? So to get to Madrid, I was in London doing press. I went to Milan, Milan to Bari. There was a festival going on in Bari where they were showing Amy. And then I went from wow. Bari to Rome. Nearly missed my connecting flight, which landed after my flight to Madrid was taken off. Got to Madrid, <laughs> found a place to stay, was there for the game. The game was awful, but it doesn't matter because we won. And then on the way home, there was no plane and no pilot for some reason. And we had to drive to Valencia. And I came home via Valencia. So that was just a typical weekend in the life of a Liverpool fan stroke film director. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. And the weekend before I was in Cannes. It's just mad. Yeah. It's been absolutely insane. So have you had time to touch the ground yet? Have you had time to decompress? Well, yeah, because as soon as you get on a tube, you're back. You know? uh-huh. So as soon yeah. as you wake up and you're back on the street, <laughs> it's like, did it, any of this happen? Was it all a dream? And I felt a bit like that this morning, actually. But also, it's, we're in Camden. So this place brings yeah. back a lot of memories because, you know, I used to live around here, did a lot of work around here. The Amy story is all set uh, around it's, this, it's all around here, yeah. All these streets, you know, it's in the film, it's in the footage. So... Just coming back here brings back a lot of memories as well. Just very, very quickly before we, we talk about the film, uh, I have to ask you about Saturday night as a fellow Red, as a fellow massive Red, someone who had a ticket, someone who was in the ground. Okay. I'm not jealous, Asif. I'm, I'm totally and utterly fine with you being there. That's, you that's, can touch me if you fine. want. <laughs> I was in Istanbul. Should we call it a draw? Look, I mean, that's pretty incredible <laughs> to have been there. But I was in Kiev. Were you in Kiev? I no. suffered. For me, this is all part of the payback of suffering so much, of being there and seeing that way that we lost last year, travelling and watching your team and being at a final and then losing and then finally getting one where, you, where we score in the first minute. And it's so odd to be ahead and actually kind of feel like we're not in trouble. We've been here. They've learned. They're experienced. They know how to slow the game down. Lost the league by a point. And mm. then we're in a Champions League final and we win it. And it, I don't think we were ever really in trouble. And the calmness. It's the calmness of the football this year. The calmness under any, under pretty much any, any situation we've, uh, you know, we've... And they didn't run out of energy yeah. 60 minutes in. Yeah. That's the difference. They were like getting late goals. So I think the football's changed. The players have matured. And that all just comes from experience of being in a final, losing, coming back 
the whole squad doesn't start all over again from scratch. They're young. They're growing together. He's so good at putting together a team. Mm. He is the man. I mean, that's the biggest thing for me. Best signing we've had 30 years. <laughs> it's Jurgen yeah. Klopp. He yeah. is so brilliant, so lovable. And you know every other team wished they had him. <laughs> Even it's been great talking spiteful. to you. We should do this again. It's one been day. fun, hasn't it? We should, we should probably talk about the film. <laughs> what film? What film? What film? Oh, what's it called? Diego Maradona. Oh, that's that the one. Film. Yeah, that's the film. But it, it is interesting. I mean, do you watch? Do you watch football with a with a filmmaker's eye? Do you watch it with a documentarian's eye? Do you, no, do you look for I watch football with a f- football, like, fans football fans' eye because um, yeah. otherwise it wouldn't be fun, right? What I didn't know all those summers that I spent in my teens, growing up on the sofa watching sport. Who knew? Out of that, two feature films will come out. Senna, <laughs> I watched a lot of Formula One growing up. And watching football, who knew this could be a career choice? It was never the plan. It was never the idea. Tour de France, I still haven't done. I watched a lot of Tour de France from beginning to end, thinking this is an amazing cinematic sport. There are no interesting stories in the Tour de France. Oh what, my God, Greg Lamond. Do you know anything about Tour de France? <laughs> Greg Lamond, after racing for a month for 3,000 kilometres, uh-huh. he won by eight seconds. <laughs> Against Laurent Fignol. It's a great story. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. One day. Yeah, one day, one day. Because f- football on the big screen has been something of a, of a holy grail. And Diego Maradona isn't necessarily a football film. It's about a footballer. But there are obviously, there's a lot of football in the, in I the movie. I can't think of many good football films. I can't think of, well, if I'm, if I'm honest, you're being generous if you say something like Escape to Victory. Oh, that's not very good. It's not very good. No. And otherwise, what else do we have? We it's such a good then. Um, there are not that many. So it is a really tough nut to crack. Mm. Um, Team sports generally, but that football particularly. Yeah. Was that uppermost in your mind when you when you started to take this challenge on, or was it? I was Maradona? aware of it. Yeah. No, I, I was aware of it, but I wasn't thinking. I mean, it's character. You know, yeah. uh, my my job is to find really interesting characters. So Etienne Senna was an amazing character. It wasn't because I thought, oh, it's really important to do something about Formula One. He happened to express himself via a car mm. and, and the challenge there was no one cares about Formula 1 how can you make that interesting people who don't care about cars going round and round in circles where well, you find the right character you can care about anything you mm-hmm. can be emotionally mm-hmm. engaged by someone who's wearing a helmet driving 200 miles an hour Amy was a different thing where she was a Londoner she was a local girl I remember thinking her she was really fascinating because I just never understood why she was in such a bad way and still performing mm. Maradona kind of pre-existed those films because I mean, I'm a football fan and I did I remember him in the 82 World Cup. I remember hearing this guy was meant to be the best player in the world. And then when he, he played, it was a bit of a disaster. And Argentina, were, at that point, you know, we had the idea that Argentina played dirty football in the 80s and he got sent off and he wasn't really all that. And we all love Brazil in the 80s. So 82, I just remember Brazil, Zico, all of that. <laughs> yeah. 86 comes around and he is undisputed. He is the best player in the world. He did everything on his own, took an average team, won the World Cup. And so when this project came around, I had read a book in the late 90s when I was a student, which was about Diego's life. And that book, I remember just thinking, wow, what a life. The things that he's done off the pitch are incredible. Wouldn't it be great one day to make a film about him? So that idea came from a book that I read in like 1998 or 1999. Wow. One of the things that struck me watching the film, I watched it last night, um, is the sheer amount of incredible footage that you've got, incredibly candid footage where did you get that? Where did you procure that footage from? And, and, and how do you even begin to assemble that into a narrative? I read this book in 1989. And then around 2012, around the time of the London Olympics, a producer called Paul Martin contacted me. He'd yeah. seen Senna, like Senna, and he said, look, I think I've heard there's, there's this material that's part of Diego Maradona's private archive okay. that's somewhere outside of Naples. Um, I think I can get access to it. Would you be interested in making a film about him? 
And I saw a little bit, like a YouTube clip of about 10 minutes of footage. And for me, at that point, it was just like the wrong time. I've just done a film about a Brazilian sporting hero. I don't know if I can go straight into an Argentinian sporting hero. So it went away. But this idea was still kind of in the back of my mind. And then it was after we made Amy and after Amy had kind of gone through awards season when my producer, James Garris, and this other producer, Paul Martin, went off and accessed the footage. And they came back and said, look, there's what they said was hundreds of hours of footage that was shot about Diego. Later on, when I investigated, what happened was Diego, when he was younger, around the time he was at Boca Juniors, 1981, mm-hmm. he had his first agent. He was a mate of his called Jorge Sisterspieler. Now, if you're interested in football, you should know about this mm-hmm. guy. He is probably the world's first super agent. Mm-hmm. He took Diego, they were schoolmates, you know, kind of not schoolmates, but mates when they were at school. And he was slightly more educated and came from a more middle-class background. And Diego was like a street guy from a favela, essentially. And he did him a deal to get him his first professional contract with Argentinos Juniors. He got him to Boca Juniors. He did the biggest deal ever to get him to Barcelona. And he broke that deal to get him to Napoli. You never heard of this guy, but he (laughs) only had one client, Diego Maradona. And he also had the foresight to say, this kid is a star and we should make a movie about him. He should be big in America. He should be be big all over the world. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire two cameramen to just follow Diego Maradona around on the pitch, off the pitch, have access to all areas. This is before clubs worried about media content. So these guys could be on the standing, on the, on the side of the pitch, behind the goal, filming, but specifically just filming Diego. Now, this is in a time when, if you thought about Italian football in the mid-'80s, it was one big, wide, high-angle shot from the top of the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the worst version of what yeah. you saw in the UEFA Cup just now with um, Arsenal <laughs> and Chelsea. That's all you got, right? That was how you watched football. And the reason we've got this amazing access is because these two cameramen were only filming Diego. But his film was never made. It started in 1981 and it was incomplete. And in a way, we finished it in 2019. So we managed to get a deal with Diego and his lawyers and a deal with the cameraman. Half the footage was somewhere in outside of Naples. The other half, I later learned, was being kept by his ex-wife, Claudia, in a trunk okay. in Buenos Aires. Okay. She and Diego are not getting along well. Let's just say that's an uh-huh. understatement. They're suing each other right now in America. I'm like, I'm still going to get that material somehow. I've got to talk to you, Claudia. You've got to give me an interview. I know you're not getting along well, but you are a part of this story. We've got to talk to you. I did an interview with her and then I said, can I just see what have you got in the back room? She's got all of his shirts, trophies, everything. And there was a trunk that hadn't been open for 30 years and in it were a bunch of umatic tapes, this old video format from the 80s. And on those tapes are the footage, the stuff when he arrives at the stadium in the car, walks out like gladiator, going into all of that was on these tapes that were disintegrating. And I said to Claudia, look, we're going to digitise this material for you because you're going to lose it. It's all going to be lost to history. Even if you don't give me the footage, it, I'm just going to digitise it, so at least mm. there's a copy of it. Mm. And hopefully you'll trust me long you know, enough to do a deal so we can interview you and get a copy of that material. And eventually it took a year. Yeah, but we were able to do it. That's incredible, and that's the starting point. The film itself has quite uh, a narrow focus, as you say. It has the the World Cup, uh, the both World Cups, the '86 World Cup and the '90 World Cup, are, are are part of it. And you focus very much on specific a specific period of his career, which is 
mainly the Napoli part of his career. Was that something that you knew going in that you wanted to do, or did you did you find that along the way? No, I, I really always cast him out as wide as possible. So we did research everything from when he was a kid, his family, his background, the 78 World Cup, which was, you know, mm. height of military dictatorship. There's a lot of corruption that's going on, a lot of stories, a lot of awful stories about what was going on during the 78 World Cup. And the, and the point is, Diego's, even at that age, 17, 18, they're considering him in Argentina the best player in the world. Mm. He doesn't even get selected. Yeah. So he's like a failure. Then the 82 World Cup, he plays, he gets sent off against Brazil for a terrible foul in the groin region of a, a Brazilian player. <laughs> Red card, misses the rest of the tournament, they get knocked out. So all of that was in a long cut. We always have these really long versions. But in the end, it was just too much. Diego's story is huge, goes on forever, continues to this day. He's doing something right now that could be in a movie. So you just got to pick your choices. You know, I wanted to make a movie that was a couple of hours long for the cinema. I didn't want to do it as a series. I, I felt in that way, I felt it was a bit of a trilogy of movies made about these kind of amazing child geniuses, but made for the cinema. Senna, Amy and then Diego. So we had to pick what's the heart of the story? What's the biggest cycle of his life? And the place where he became the best player in the world and the place where all of his problems started, where he mm-hmm. became a person suffering from addiction issues, mm-hmm. all happened in Naples. The most dramatic period of his life and the place where I guess the best footage that we had access to, mm-hmm. that we could visualise, therefore make a movie, was all during Naples. And growing up, I remember watching Maradona obviously in the World Cup, and now and again you'd see him on the TV, but TV football was never televised to the extent it is, it is these days. So this, this film was incredible, incredible, just that I'd seen this guy, this, this artist at the peak of his powers, the things he could do with the ball, the movement, the way he would jink past players. Every tackle in this movie that he seems to ride is a career-ending tackle if it connects. It was mind-blowing. The sort of the unreconstructed thuggery of the football back then was extraordinary to me. Uh, what was it like for you watching and finding that, that, that stuff? I absolutely agree. I think that's the, the shocking thing is when you see how brutal football was in the 80s. And he's in Italy where he had the toughest defences and the toughest... And yeah, he, he, you know, everyone's trying to break his legs. And so this idea that everyone gets a bit obsessed with the fact that he might have touched the ball with his hand or not touched the ball... I really don't care. The defenders are trying to kill him. And he's saying, you are cheating and I'm going to do whatever I can do to get my own back to you. And I think that that's what's interesting about it. Because if you are a real football fan, you know, if your player falls over and gets a penalty and he wasn't touched, you're not going to complain. Yeah. Right. But if at the time that the way football was so brutal, he did have an injury in Barcelona where his career could have ended before anyone even heard of him, really, before he'd become famous because Goicochea did break his ankle. You know, that's where he had to come back from. That's just our title sequence in our film. So it was happening all the time. And I agree, you know, it's the fact that football was brutal. It's the fact that the pitches were in a real state. The balls were different. And the big thing is, in those days, you wouldn't even get a foul if someone smashed into you and knocked you over now you get a little touch you know you're going to get a free kick yeah. players roll around they get free kick it's possible to score 50 goals every year this year because no one can touch you yeah. in Diego Maradona's time the toughest league there's ever been because mm. all the best players in the world were in one league playing mm. for all the teams he goes to a team that was nearly relegated the year before and within three years wins the league championship mm-hmm. In the toughest league with the best players in the world spread around, that just doesn't happen. Now players will only go to the richest team in every league. Mm. They're only going to go to a place where they're guaranteed to be in the Champions League. Pretty much, yeah. You know, it's different. It's different. And during that time, Argentinian um, journalists would say to me, Messi's great, but what Messi will never do 
He will never beat England with like what is one of the best goals of all time and a handball four years after they were at war. <laughs> That's the thing. He, you know, after the Falklands War, they played in a quarterfinal. Yeah. And everyone says if you were to sum up his career... That's the match. Yeah. It's not the final. It's not the semi-final. Yeah. It's the quarter-final against England, a team that humiliated them in a war. Mm-hmm. He then beat in the way that Latins want to win a game. Yeah. You want to beat them with genius, but you also want to beat them with a bit of cheating because that hurts more. <laughs> That's why everyone's still going on about it. It strikes me that the, uh, you know, the film, you, you very much uh, have this notion of the duality of Diego. I think that's why there's even a, a line dividing Diego and Maradona in the title font. Was that something that you went into this film knowing that you would there, that there was a duality to him? I tell you what, what you'll learn when you talk to me is that I have no idea what I'm doing when I go in. Right? <laughs> no I, so I mean, in this case, I actually had read a book, which is a first with Senna and with Amy. I didn't go away and read loads of books to research them. What I do is I just start talking to people and I start looking at the footage and the story always comes out of what I see and what I hear. So I don't go in there with any kind of idea, preset idea. So here, I didn't have any idea what the drama was going to be. I knew that there's a lot of events in his life. I know he got into a lot of tricky situations and it's literally during the interviews when I'm talking to people, things start being said and I start making connections and links and I'm in my mind these films the process is always like you know a kind of bad cop movie where they're looking for like some killer and then they go to the hotel room and they've got everything stuck up on the wall and there's arrows joining and sellotape that's my brain okay when I'm making these films so I'm just getting bits of paper and I'm sticking up on the wall and I'm trying to make a connection between that bit and that bit and that bit, and that bit. In, a, in my second third fourth language because um, I don't speak Argentinian Spanish and I definitely don't speak Neapolitan <laughs> but Fernanda Signorini who was Diego's trainer yes. personal trainer who brings him back from that leg break and says yeah the way I'm going to train you because you're brilliant already I'm going to train your mind. Read this book. Read yeah. this. I'm going to teach you about this. I'm going to teach you about that. And for you to understand where you stand and what you mean culturally to Argentina and to people and to Neapolitan. Really interesting. So it was Fernando Signorini, who I'd never heard of. But when you talk to him, you realize he knew everything about Diego. And he knows Diego Maradona better than Diego knows Diego Maradona. He came up with this idea. There's Diego knows, you know, Maradona. There's one guy that's really sweet, really nice, really lovely. I want to spend all my time with him. Then there's this other person, the ego almost, the kind of angry version, which is Maradona, who I wouldn't take a step with. Mm. But a Maradona being so smart says, yeah, that's cool. But if I was just Diego, I'd still be in the shantytown. Yeah. It's Maradona that got me out of there. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's what, what I thought was interesting. And the film's sort of built on this concept of you need these two sides of your personality, your schizophrenic, bipolar, whatever it is. He has these two sides. And once you understand that, if you see Diego Maradona doing anything afterwards, it kind of makes sense. Because I can meet him on one day and he's lovely. And I meet him the next day. It's the same guy. Nothing's happened between us. And you can just see he's, he's in a bad frame of mind. And what, what did I do? You didn't do anything. Yeah, of course. He's just not the same person today. And the people I met would say they wish he could go back to that guy he used to be. So it's almost like you've got this spectrum with Diego on one end and Maradona on the other. And he somewhere swings between his two mm. ends. Now, when I asked him about it, he would deny it totally. He's like, there's only one of me. What are you talking about? <laughs> but he's everyone around him kind of got the concept and agreed and maybe it's a bit simplistic but when you're making a movie you have to kind of come up with the essence of how you can express this idea yeah. what was evident 
he was never forced into a situation. Mm. It was not like he had an entourage that made him do things. Mm. No one could make him do anything he doesn't want to do. I'm mm. never going to get him to go to Cannes unless he wants to be in Cannes. <laughs> and last year during the World Cup, you know, that great reputable newspaper, the Daily Mail, uh, <laughs> somehow came out with this idea that I had told him to act up during the World Cup oh my God. because it was for a film. He started to Box act office. like I'm going to make him do anything. That's, that's him. <laughs> And of course, with both Senna and Amy, in a horrible way, you had something to hang your movie on as well, which was tragedy and a, and a full stop to both their stories. That was a conscious decision. I knew that if I was going to do this again, it had to be different to those films. I couldn't make a film which, you know, sadly, tragically, the two wonderful human beings died young. So I was aware. That's one thing I knew that the reason to do this, one, he's alive. Mm-hmm. I can meet him and talk to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whatever that changes when you've got the real person around. And then the other thing is his story keeps going. He keeps creating drama and it's going to be a difficult way, one to end because this is actually about growing up and getting old and dealing with or not dealing with the mistakes you've made in the past. Mm. And I guess I'm making it now as an older person than when I made Senna and Amy. So I thought, yeah, that was a challenge that I was interested with and because it's not, you know, they're, they're, like I said, they're tragic endings, but it's not a neat ending here. And his biographers and journalists that I met, one of my questions would always be, so where does this film end? And they'd just start laughing. Like, good luck. You know, we've written books about him. And the minute we press send and sent it to the publisher, he'd go off and do something tomorrow that makes the whole ending irrelevant. <laughs> so they were just laughing, saying, good luck. Do you have Google alerts if he does something daft? Kind of, yeah. You know, I mean, not for that. But yeah, you do hear about it. Maradona. You, if you don't hear about it, someone tells you. Have you seen what he said? Oh, no. What's now? What? One of them was when we were trying to show him the film. I was hoping we'd be nearly done. Actually, we're mild. we were a year away from finishing. But I was thinking, it's time to show him the film. Because I have, I had three interviews with Diego. That was a contractual situation. Three times three hours. And I'd used up two of them. And I was saving one up. Because I wanted to show him the film. I figured there may be certain things in there he may have an issue with. Or uh-huh. may say, you've got that wrong. It was like this. I'm like, okay, I'm going to show you the film. It also may... You might remember things differently. Yeah, Having yeah, yeah. watched that ma- yeah. material of himself that he's probably never seen. Yeah. You know, he's never sat down and watched those umatic tapes that I have. So I was going to show him the film in his living room in Dubai and then interview him. And then his people said, well, he's not going to be in Dubai. All right, well, where's he going to go? He's, he's off to Belarus. So I get the map out. Where's Belarus? Oh, no, it's closer than Dubai. Can we come to Belarus? They said, no, 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 he's off to Colombia. Colombia, I don't think I can go to Colombia. Uh, any other time we can show you the film? Well, I'll be in Moscow for the World Cup. Why don't you come to Moscow? And I was like, I don't think that's going to be a good idea. And as we saw, <laughs> it wasn't going to be the best time to no, show him this particular film. I can imagine. They also said, just send us a link. I'm like, I think I need to watch it with you. Yeah. So then it was like, where are you going to be after Moscow? He said, I'm going to be in Argentina. So he's like, okay, fine. We're flying to Argentina. I've still got a few interviews to do. We booked our tickets. Two days before we fly to Argentina, I'm it's literally, I'm packing my bag. I get a message from my mate in Puerto Rico saying, have you seen the news? I'm like, no, what's up? He's taken a job in Mexico in Sinaloa, which is where he's been for the last year. Oh, my God. So He still owes me an interview. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so he still hasn't seen the film. No. He still owes you an interview. Yes. That's, that's, that's so, is but, there a sequel but coming? Be, or? But being in Diego Maradona land, so we were worried about the trailer and what's in the trailer and how's he going to react when the trailer comes out. How's, fine, okay. Then the poster comes out and we didn't even think about it, but on the poster it has four words. The title, Diego Maradona, underneath it says, Rebel, Hero, Hustler, God. Mm-hmm. So some Argentinian ju- journalists went up to Diego and said, have you seen the poster? And he said, yeah, it looks great. He goes, yeah, but look what they've called you. And they translated, however this person, who's never seen the film either, translated Hustler 
into Spanish to Diego. Diego took great offense. <laughs> the day after Cannes comes out and said, I do not like this film. I don't agree with that word. I'm not a thief. I never stole from anyone. That's one of his go-to lines, by the yeah. way. If you've ever looked him up, he will always say, I never stole from anyone. I worked for him. And he says, do not see this film. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> there was a kind of slight panic with all the distributors, like you can imagine, in yeah. Cannes. I'm like, he hasn't seen the movie. He's talking about a word that's been translated to him. But what, what, what it is, is all the Argentinians, I said, everyone's going to want to see the film the minute. Because there was this mis kind of understanding that when we said we got this archive, that somehow the film was the official version. Yes. But if you've seen the film, yes. it's kind of all in there. Everything that he did is in there, yeah. you know. And it doesn't hold that, back. The fact that none of his team had seen it, how could they have given, you know, <laughs> told us, given us notes? No one's watched it. One day. One day we'll sit down and watch it. <laughs> and and get I'll that, run. And no, get that extra three I hours. did have the feeling in Cannes of going up the red carpet and, you know, it's an incredible experience. But when you're there, I was just thinking, God, what a shame Diego Maradona's not here to experience this love coming yeah. from the audience. And from it would have been amazing for him to have been there. Halfway through the film, I was thinking, thank God he's not here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this is great. Who had the idea of showing it to him for the first time in Cannes, of like of all the crazy places in the world? Then at the ending, we've got a standing ovation. I'm like, oh, what a shame he's not here. But I was thinking, I don't know if I would be here. If he was sat next to me, if he was watching it for the first time in front of 2,000 people in that cinema. So it's all part of it. And had he been there for the first time, he might not have been around for the standing ovation. He might have left before then, stormed out in, a, in a rage. Something would have happened. Something so would he, have happened. You would have had a Google alert, but you wouldn't have had to have I would have been a Google alert. I would have been, right <laughs> would have would have been a Google alert. <laughs> um, over the last few years, I mean, and right from the beginning of your career, but over, especially with the last few years, beginning with Senna, you have juggled directing documentaries, but also directing TV and directing narrative features as well. How do you balance those two different sides of your career? Or do you not see it as two different sides of your career? I mean, it is because I really love shooting. So it's really fun to be back on set and doing kind of mind tons for, for David Fincher. It was amazing. But it's partly to keep my sanity because it's not healthy to be editing for years on end. <laughs> it really isn't. It's a weird way to, to make movies. So to go away from that, back to what was always my first love, is which is being on a set with a crew, shooting, actors, having a script, worrying about schedules and time and you know getting it all done. So I had a great time doing Mindhunter. I did another film, Alien, and I've done a bunch of stuff like that. I really want to write a script. I want to go back to like my first from The Warrior and find a story and find a book and adapt it and lock myself away and write. Um, and there may be docs that I produce or maybe other stuff that I do. I, if I do a doc, I probably won't be doing a biog. Uh -huh. I'm feeling it's time to deal with the state of the world we're in, something uh -huh. political, something to do with the environment. Something to, there's a book that I had an option on that I was working on. I'm not sure if it's going to happen, but in my head, Senna's an action movie. Uh -huh. Amy's a musical. Uh -huh. Senna's a low-life gangster film. It's like, you know, it's Mean Streets or something. So I think the next one I'd quite like to do a sci-fi, but my version of it. That would be very, very interesting. I know, I know exactly what you mean. The beginning of this movie feels like something out of the, you know, out of an eighties thriller. And the, end, the ending, the ending. Yeah, oh, of course, yeah, absolutely. Fall from grace. Um, perhaps our paths will cross at Anfield next year. Asif Kapadia, it's been a pleasure. Inshallah, God willing. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right, so that was Asif Kapadia. 
Terry White, tell us about this movie, Diego Maradona, starring Diego Maradona as Diego Maradona. <laughs> it is. The cast is not extensive for this one, Chris. As you said, this is Asif Kapadia's third film in something of a trilogy, which began with Senna and then we had Amy, both, I think, revolutionary in terms of documentary filmmaking. This is slightly different, I have to say, in terms of how he used footage. There is a lot and lot and lot of footage. Mm. And you're right, it really pivots narratively around the kind of insane mania around him when he was at the height of his fame. So it opens on this kind of set piece of this car racing through the streets with um, screaming fans and it's this mad chase yeah. and you get the sense of him being in the middle of this frenzy that you really only see for like musicians and rock it's like stars. A thriller. It is yeah. like thriller. And it's really about... Much like Amy, it's really about the price of success and the price of fame and the human cost of that. The thing is that this is a really well-known story and he is, we should say, the only subject who was still living when the yep. film is made. So, and it covers, you know, women, drugs, fame, kind of despair. The bit that for me was kind of missing a little bit was they had new interviews with Maradona and they didn't really reveal very much. So I was really waiting for kind of this moment of self-awareness around the price of fame, the awful drug years, the things he's been through and, and having yeah. the sense of perspective to be able to look back on what's what's gone. I don't think he thinks that way, though. Do you think that's what it was? I think that's what it is. I wasn't sure if he was just still so in that place of dealing with shit yeah. that he'd not reached the end of it to be able to kind of look back. It is interesting, though, because, I, you know... <laughs> You could argue certainly a part of him dies in this movie. Mm. And you know, there's a really interesting thread in the film, and we discussed it a little bit with Asif in the, in the interview, where he kind of stumbled upon this idea of this dichotomy between this, this relationship between Diego, who is the yeah. sweet, loving kid who grew up in Argentina and just happened to be you know, quite possibly the most talented player to ever yeah. play the game. And Maradona, who yeah. is the... Persona he creates and gradually I think that persona takes over and, and yeah. subsumes Diego and you could argue that the offence of this movie, which again are fairly well documented yeah. but I don't want to talk too, too, too deeply no. about them, that perhaps Diego no longer really exists, that it's all mm. Maradona, it's all this ego monster and that ego monster would look back at this period and think, well, I didn't do anything wrong. I yeah. was the victim of circumstance. I was yeah. the victim of a conspiracy. So maybe there's something in that. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he has moments of genuine regret, but I yeah. don't know whether he would actually express them in a public forum. No, and I think what, what you missed, what I missed was learning more about him as a man. But to what you were just saying, actually, if that private, real, if that's what we want to call him, part of him has not existed in that way for a long time, then maybe it was never going to show you that. Do you know what I mean? Because they spoke to his ex-wife, they spoke to people in his life, and you, there was never, for me, real meat on the bones of Diego Maradona, the man, as opposed to Maradona, the footballing icon. But actually what you've just said is really fascinating because mm. maybe that is a, maybe that's the reveal, that he is now just Maradona. Yeah. And what went before is what led to him because, you know, he looked as the most devastating bit and without saying too much, but the devastating bit is when you see him now, really. Then also you get that sense of the pressure ratcheting up on him. And, yes. you know, he, he chose in a way to live in this goldfish bowl and, and but got himself into this situation that he just couldn't extricate himself from. And it, it, it's, 
from that point of view, it's, it's a it's a tragedy as well. Yeah. I, I thought I thought it was fantastic myself. And they, I have to say, the filmmaking craft is something else. Capardi, I mean, his editing skills are phenomenal, and we knew this from Senna and Amy. The pace and the rhythm, the narrative rhythm he puts in just through sheer intelligence mm-hmm. of editing is yep. absolutely phenomenal. And maybe part of, of what I'm getting at, and I have to say I reviewed this and I still reviewed it really positively, is that I'm not a sports fan. And so some the over-reliance I felt a little bit on game footage um really kind of left me feeling a little bit unsatisfied on the narrative side of it. Okay. But, I mean, these are quibbles because it is mm. a brilliant, brilliant piece of filmmaking. And if you have any interest in him, the sportsman, or of that period, of that, you know, that particular time in sport, in that the kind of 80s and that decade of excess and what was happening culturally with drugs and all of that, you can see how these things all came together into being the kind of perfect storm for mm. what happened to him. Absolutely, mm. it, it's a fascinating one, and you know this is this may be a bit of a glib comparison, but in the way that Capadia made the film, kind of reminded me in a way of how writers mm. put features together in a weird way. Yeah, I'm we're not obviously comparing ourselves in any way, shape, or form to what what, what Asif does, but he, he went in, he had no idea of the story he was going to tell until he went in and found this hundreds, thousands of hours of footage, and then gradually, you know, and began to find something. Oh, here's a line here. Oh, that will spin mm. me off in this direction. And that's very much the way I work when I'm writing the feature. I'm sure it's the same with you guys as well. But, you know, so it's an interesting, just a creative process that went at this movie fascinated me also. Uh, but I thought it was terrific and a, a very worthy successor, I thought, to Amy and Senna. Yeah. So four stars then for Diego Maradona. And now we move on to Men in Black International. And that obviously... I don't know why, obviously, but it means that James Dyer is here to talk about it. Hello, James. Hi. Yes, they let me review a comedy, which, as we can all agree, was a really good idea. Who let Dougal do a funeral? <laughs> exactly that. Uh, this is Men in Black 4, coming a full seven years after Men in Black 3, and shed of both Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, replaced instead by Tessa Thompson and Thor himself, Chris Hemsworth. In fact, not only does it reunite uh, Hemsworth with his, with his Thor Ragnarok co-star, it also reunites him with his Thor Ragnarok accent because he's playing a Brit, a Brit agent at the London Men in Black office. And Tessa Thompson is a rookie agent who gets seconded to London to... I mean, honestly, it doesn't matter. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff. There's an <laughs> alien that gets killed. There's a weapon. It, honestly, it's, the plot is completely disposable. But... They're really good fun. And I, freakishly, found this film funny. I laughed in it. You're all shaking your heads at me. This is the most (laughs) hilarious thing. Like I should never be allowed to review comedies because I hate all comedy and I find nothing funny. And yet we came out of this and I'm the only one who found it amusing. When did you laugh? You, well, I was I mean, sitting two seats away from you. I, I laugh don't... on the inside, but uh, I found it funny. Like I chortled. Which, which, in, which as again, bits? internally, which, which bits the bits you... with the with the with the with the Chris Hemsworth being funny. The bits with I, again, I'm, 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 being I'm funny. To, I'm going to focus in on this. So I'm going right, to drill do it, down. Do it. Hit me which with bits it. with Chris Hemsworth being funny? What because I found you could funny. argue that Chris Hemsworth, who's a very very funny man, he is. and brilliant. Is not so in this film. No, I disagree. I felt this film, and I said this in my review, it feels a little bit like a gag reel for Thor Ragnarok. I think it's those two, though, I think he and you she... You wash your mouth out. You take those words out of your mouth. have an incredible chemistry. I think they spark off each other. I think Had. they're really funny. I think Kumail Were. Nanjiani was really funny as Pawnee in this I'll as well. I think Rafe Spall was brilliant as kind of C, the sort of sneery thing. How he low really is your bar? <laughs> I genuinely, I had so much fun with this film now, so, and so that's why I gave it the full five stars. So, 
<laughs> no, I kid. This just about scraped to three. But nevertheless, for Men in Black International, that's pretty fucking impressive because this was a film I think we'd all written off as terrible. And, and, and I went and, into this... And ex- some of us continue to write it off having seen it. This to be absolute shit. I thought this would be the most disposable film of the summer. And yet, and yet, it I is. had loads of fun. That chemistry fun. Is, is non-existent. And Hemsworth, who I think is so charismatic, he's so naturally he's so compelling. Funny. He, I mean, there's a phone here. I'm going to use it to dial something in. Like, really? No, that's <laughs> harsh. He was in, he was in full, like, he, thorn. No, it's a beast. It's like, he was He funny. strikes me in this movie. He's brilliant. He can improvise with the best yes, during that time. But loads of improv. It didn't work in this movie, and he strikes me as someone who was slightly left adrift without a really good script. F. Gary Gray definitely is, a bad script. Definitely it's bad weird script. to say this, these words, but F. Gary Gray, who I has made a lot of films I like, is not uh, a comedy director. He doesn't have the lightness of touch. But equally, from an action point, he of is view, not Barry Sonnenfeld. It doesn't really like he does. You never saw, I think, any of his Fast and Furious flair. Like, there's a chase sequence in this, and I thought his 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 Fast and Furious chops were not on display in that. I thought that chase sequence. In fact, uh, the action set pieces as a whole are quite disposable. And yet, I really enjoyed the company of the characters okay. and the jokes who were amusing. Who are you, and what have you done with James Dyer? <laughs> I know. I came out of this and I was like, I don't understand how I've become the kind of sole defender of this comedy. I laughed three times. I'm the 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 funniest thing that happened when I was watching this movie was something Helen did (laughs) that I cannot repeat. No, you can't. While while the movie was coming to an end, Helen Um, laughed four times in this film. I did. I did laugh occasionally. You juggle the camera. Yeah, Yeah. I was. It's seriously the movie. It's so unfunny. I was counting the number of times I laughed. James, what is wrong with you? It's 140 minutes. It's a little longer than it needs to be. A little long uh, because Sonnenfeld's films were around the 90 minute yeah. mark. Like he yeah. was quite because he understands yeah. that comedy gets less funny yeah. the longer you go over 90 minutes. And yet, minutes. I yeah. didn't get bored, okay? But I was super bored <laughs> throughout. <laughs> I think I might have been the only person in this entire room who but enjoyed there, it. But there is something I'm trying to work out what it is where the person who hates comedy really likes this, <laughs> and the people who like mm. comedy don't like it. Yeah. And there's a weird inverse universe thing happening here, yeah. which means it's definitely not funny. We're if in you the like upside it. down. Yeah, I think, I think that would explain yeah. a lot. I, d- I don't yeah. know what happened. I, I, it's possible I've had my memory erased there's or something. Some, there's, but... some, like, there's some interesting ideas in here, but and the, the plot is super predictable. If you can't see what's going on from about minute five, mm. then there's something wrong with yes. you. It has none of the absurdity of the of the Sonnenfeld movies. And let's talk about you know this franchise very, yes. very quickly mm. in terms of when we say Men in Black, we really mean Men in Black. Yeah. We yeah. don't mean Men in Black 2, Men which Black, is not good. Two is terrible. Men in Black 3 is worse, is worse yeah. than that. And this continues the downward trend. Mm. Uh, Except that it's the second best Men in Black film. It's you're no, but I, I mean, I, I actually your wouldn't. To argue, idiocy is I actually wouldn't impressive. argue with that. But like, I, I think the it's other two bar. are terrible. Yeah. So I like, even if I call it the second best, it's still not. Good. I love the way okay. I am officially the champion for this film, and I'm basically saying it just about scrapes three stars. <laughs> <But> you, you <laughs> sound so enthusiastic it's because I was so surprised. I had this as a nailed on somewhere between a one and a two. Like this looked like the trailer's terrible. The idea of it, like who the fuck wants another Men in Black, Men in Black movie? And it doesn't even have the stars in it, you know. And I was like, oh, it's Chris. He's playing an English guy. I was like, this is just a car crash waiting to happen. And then I went in. I was like, oh, 
this is this but is fun. the characters are weird and unlikable. Hemsworth is unlikable in this movie. Yeah, but he's, yeah. he's, I think he's likable in the same way that Ragnarok and indeed uh, Fat Thor in Avengers Endgame is likable. I just I love that shtick that he no. does. I think it's really funny. Thor's likable in this movie because it's Thor, and we've built up this this relationship <laughs> with him over the years. And Hemsworth's fantastic in his roles. And yeah, he's this he's, was he's Thor a in a suit for me. No, That's he's all a I dick. needed. No, he's he's acting like really entitled, annoying, full of himself. Like, like some kind of entitled, annoying, like a vain, no, 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 cool no, no. boy. No, but that's the thing. They cussed him out. Thor is never annoying. This is the interesting thing, whereas this guy I, is I annoying. I think H&M is excellent. And, uh, and, and H&M I was... is a fantastic clothing shop, <laughs> sure, but I'm not sure what that has to do with Agents H&M. I, oh. I was oh, I see. No. See what I did there? Oh! Yeah, I was riffing I on the story. I hadn't yeah. put that two together because yeah. I, was, I was trying so hard to look for the exit while this movie was playing. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I don't... The chemistry that they had, and they had chemistry off the bloody chain, uh, off the charts even, in the in Thor Ragnarok. Just non-existent here. You wouldn't even know that they'd made a previous film together, Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth. I disagree. Well, I think she's really trying to do something with the character as well. Yeah. But I don't think she has anything to work with in the script. I think the script. The script is the I don't think there was a script. Yeah, that's the fundamental problem. It's the right? improv that works. Yeah. But actually, mm. I think the, the, one of the big problems is that Men in Black had a spirit and a knowing kind of sense about it, which meant it was really the tone of it. It met, was what made it really funny. This for me took itself so earnestly in places, and I was but like took their attempts at humour really seriously and I was like that spirit and that playfulness and that knowing sense of what they're doing was just completely See, I got the complete opposite. I felt like this leaned into the goofy far more than the previous films had because but you didn't have I'm a straight about, I'm like, there's a difference between knowing and leaning into the goofy, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so Ed Solomon, uh, Helen's just uh, drawn my attention towards this. Uh, Ed Solomon, the co-writer, I think, of the first one, or maybe he wrote the first one on his own, uh, said, in honour of the release of Men in Black International, brackets, I guess, I just got my new Men in Black profit statement, which shows it's still in the red. The fact they've made a fourth one confirms, as I've always said, that the big studios are only in it for the art. And clearly that art won over James Dyer and uh, we gave it three stars. Three stars officially for Men in Black. A low three. A generous three. Which brings us on to the last film this week. Sometimes, Always, Never. Mm. Which... I mean, this is a movie about Scrabble, Helen, isn't it? It is not not a movie about Scrabble. Okay. Um, yes, in a manner of speaking, it's a movie, in fact, about Scrabble. But it's also a movie about a family and uh, a father and son relationship. So um, it stars Bill Nye as Alan, and we meet Alan going on a journey with his son, Peter, who's played by Sam Riley. We're not Sam quite Riley. clear why they're going where they're going at first. They, they stay overnight in a little hotel where they meet another couple who are played by Tim McInerney and Jenny Agutter. Oh, great good casting. I like that. Casting already. Yeah. Um, and again, you're not quite sure why they are there, and I almost don't want to explain it, because I feel like the less you know, the better. But cool. they all play a friendly game of Scrabble, and it's essentially a story about this relationship between the father and the son. There's a there's a, a missing part of this family. There's a fragment missing from the family, and it's sort of messed them up, and it's messed up their relationship. And, and soon after this particular evening... Um, Alan essentially invites himself to stay with Peter and his wife, who's played by Alice Lowe, and their son, Mm -hmm. uh, Jack, and uh, starts trying to kind of, I guess, maybe reconnect or build something new with them in this kind of new world that they're all living in. And it's about that. It's about these relationships. So when this film sits, 
you know, sticks with their relationships. I think it's actually really good. It's written by uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce, who's oh, obviously yep, yep. done... Oh, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, great, yep. great, and really moving British films before this. Um, the Railway Man, uh, what else did he do? He did one of Danny Boyle's Millions, things like that. He's, he's a really good writer. I think that's all there. The director is Carl Hunter, who has written, you know, he's done quite a lot of work before in short films and TV shows. I'm not sure if he's done many films before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he kind of goes for kind of Wes Anderson-esque quirkiness, you know, sort of close-ups and odd angles of objects that are pretty looking and weird almost, not quite stop-motion animation, but weird sort of angles on things and, and there are little bits of animation and things like that. And, and it just doesn't need it and I wish he'd kind of just trusted in his script and his cast both of whom are fantastic to just tell the story because I, I always felt every time one of these moments happens it kind of threw me out and there are there are elements of the script being kind of mannered and, and intentionally odd but when you add in the kind of odd way of filming as well it just it's it divorces you from the story instead of drawing you in in any way so I just find it really pointless uh, in oh. that respect those okay. bits I mean, yeah, th yeah, those bits okay. of those kind of flourishes but apart from that I, I really did like the characters I really did like the story I think the less you know about the story going in the better so I wouldn't even read too much about it um, but I, I just think yeah I just think he needs to trust himself as a director because the, the family scenes and, and that stuff is actually really really good and I just don't think it needs the frippery around the edges Sounds intriguing. And we gave this one three stars, which, as we always say in the podcast, is a recommendation. Three stars then for sometimes, always, never. But is it a recommendation about Men in Black International? <laughs> yeah. This is what I really want to know. This is what it I is really... from James. It is from James. Yes, it's comedy gold. <laughs> three stars. I know now why you laugh. Here's I'm going to go out on a limb do. and say, if you are skin and on the fence, do not pay to see this film. Yeah, but like ultimately, this summer, what what are your options for like if you want blockbuster entertainment? It's like Godzilla, Dark Phoenix, Men in Black. You speak as a man who does not pay to see movies. That's all. Theater, stuff that happens in the park. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to see um, that's Shakespeare. That's Shakespeare. That's Shakespeare. <laughs> what, you mean big pentameter? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's back. I'm going to see him in Midsummer Night's Dream today. That's the one with the ass. It is. Is that why you're dressed all sexy like? Maybe. <laughs> ah, it all makes sense now. All right. Interesting. Very interesting indeed. So, two stars in for Men in Black International. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, what else can you do? You can see the Women's World Cup. That's uh, that's going on right is that now. Football? It's, yes, it is football. Well, I don't know. It's a cricket World Cup as well. Is that that's football? cricket. No, it's cricket. Uh, <laughs> is that women? Just, just, no, it's men. Oh. It's men. As it should be, Helen. Yeah, men. <laughs> leather. Willow. The sound of the bat on the ball. You know, what are, what's, what, four what are runs, you describing right six now? runs. What's leather? Two fingers the in the ball. air. Hello. The ball leather. What? Is that what we're saying? What, what leather do they wear? The, in the ball is the leather. Ball. The bat is willow. Oh God. We should probably go. We should <laughs> think. I we think this podcast go. ended a while ago. We should bring it. We should bring this to an, a natural end. A merciful end. A yeah. merciful end. Put it end. down. Put it down now. I will say before we go, there are a couple of specials to keep your eyes and ears peeled for. Our Rockaband spoiler special with director Dexter Fletcher is available right now. Our X Men Dark Phoenix spoiler special with writer director Simon Kimberg and producer Hutch Parker will be up. Let's uh, say Monday now, I'm guessing. <laughs> probably more likely. Uh, our Kevin Smith interview special will be up next week as well. But until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from my friend, my colleague, my boss, my leader, my my 
I mean, what else? What, what else am I contractually obliged to call you, Terry White? I don't know. But anyway, Terry White, it's goodbye. It's goodbye from Terry White. Goodbye, sweet Chris. Pay rise. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yes. Legally binding. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. She's off to get some ass in a park or something like that. I'm not quite sure. I'm going to the Bridge Theatre actually. But yes, the Bridge Theatre. Okay. All right. Bye bye. And it's goodbye from James Dyer. Protecting the Earth from the scum of the universe, but not from terrible comedies. <laughs> yeah. Crucially enough, yeah. in terrible comedies. Oh, I'm, no, I'm, I'm sold now. I'm turned around. I'm all about the comedies now. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Loving the lols. Will they find their way into your personality at any point? <laughs> I resent that implication. Anyway, and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to take down Tom Selleck. The key? The tash. You take out the tash, you take down the Selleck. The tash controls the Selleck. If that doesn't work... I'll show him a Raiders of the Lost Ark poster, and when he's too busy crying about what might have been, I'll kick the fucker out of a window. You're defenestrated, Selick. Take that. Thanks for listening. See you next week. I'm Big Pentameter. Bye. Bye.